Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Think about the water you drink, the tap it comes out of, or the water you wash your hands with, or water your lawn with. Think about where the rainwater goes after it washes down your street and into the gutter. The infrastructure of pipes and pumps brings this water to us and takes it away. But have you ever thought about the people who make the water system work in your community and nationwide? My guest today is a scholar who has thought deeply about and written on the water workforce. And he's here to talk about the challenges and opportunities facing that workforce. Joseph Kane is a senior research associate and associate fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings and co-author with the D. Tomer of the new report, Renewing the Water Workforce, Improving Water Infrastructure and Creating a Pipeline to Opportunity. Also on today's show, in a new coffee break, meet Jenny Schutz, also a scholar in our Metropolitan Policy Program, who focuses on housing markets and how they affect people in different income brackets. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Joe, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks, Fred, for having me. So you and Adi Tomer, who's also been on our podcast and was recently on our Intersections podcast talking about this topic, have this report on renewing the water workforce. And as I said in the introduction, we focus a lot on the water infrastructure, the pipes and the pumps that bring us the water, take the water away, but not the people who work on it. So what got you interested in this aspect of the issue? Yeah. So a lot of my recent work has examined you know, water infrastructure needs in terms of investment and economic concerns at a local level. So in other words, what are some of the major operational challenges faced by utilities in the face of an extreme climate? How are we adapting or not adapting these systems to perform more reliably? And why aren't these concerns being viewed in terms of the industries and households served when we're thinking of efficiency, affordability, and so on? But in addition to all of this, I've also explored the infrastructure workforce as a whole, measuring the types of workers involved in constructing and maintaining all our various transportation, energy, logistics, and other infrastructure facilities for decades to come. So it's not just about looking at short-term shovel-ready jobs, but emphasizing long-term career pathways, which are often involved in, in the skilled trades, right? So what types of jobs do these workers fill? How much do they earn? What are their educational and training requirements? These types of questions are central when we think about not only investing in our physical infrastructure, but also investing in all the skilled talent needed to oversee these assets. So really examining the water workforce is a perfect nexus of these topics. We understand or at least hear about water infrastructure concerns in places like Flint, for instance, but there's a human dimension to all of this too, which should be attracting more attention and action. And the moment is ripe for action, given the opportunity at hand to both improve our infrastructure and provide durable career pathways for all types of workers across all regions. Yeah, I want to take a deep dive into some of your findings about the composition of the water workforce in a minute here. But first, I'm always interested in how do you go about doing this research? How do you identify what is a water-related job? Did you do site visits? I mean, how does this come about? Right. So this water workforce project was exciting for a number of reasons. Statistically, it not only gave me a chance to dive deeper into this crucial topic, pun intended, (laughs) but it also allowed me to meet with a bunch of different folks across the country to reflect on the very real challenges and innovations already underway to improve our infrastructure and support a long-term economic opportunity. So, for example, there have been several previous utility surveys and regional studies measuring some of these issues, which are terrific, but they do not always provide a truly national, comprehensive view of all the different industries and occupations in this sector. In order to more accurately estimate just how many workers are involved in water infrastructure construction, maintenance, and other activities, I aim to create a more consistent definition of the type of tasks they carry out and ultimately take a broader view of the careers in this space. So not just looking at a handful 
of jobs tied to a particular project in a particular place. At the same time, I talked with many different researchers, utilities, and other groups confronting these issues head on. So by taking site visits to the Bay Area in California, Louisville, Kentucky, and then Camden, New Jersey, it offered me the chance to see and absorb some of the major challenges and opportunities faced by a variety of different markets, economically and otherwise. And I have to say, the utility and workforce leaders in these markets are pioneering some of the most promising programs and collaborations in this respect, aiming to identify and support their next generation workforce now. I wrote up a few blogs on these efforts, which I highly recommend listeners also check out. So yeah, I think the combination of quantitative and qualitative work was a driving motivation to do this research in the first place, to not only provide a bunch of helpful metrics for utilities and educational institutions and other other groups in their planning efforts, but to actually equip them with timely insights and actionable strategies to get something done as well. You've mentioned terms like promising programs, the next generation workforce. It seems like it's a really forward-looking workforce economics-focused report. Can you just briefly describe what you think the top-line conclusion is of the study? Yeah. Well, by defining and measuring the water workforce, not just the water utility workforce, which I'll describe in a minute, the study reveals the enormous economic opportunity the water infrastructure as a whole offers the country at a time when many Americans are struggling to access economic opportunity and many of the country's infrastructure assets are at the end of their useful life. We know that infrastructure jobs offer considerable promise, which I've covered in some of my previous work, but water jobs are particularly emblematic of this opportunity. This is especially true when it comes to the competitive and equitable wages that water workers earn and the specialized in-demand skill sets they develop over time. But it's largely up to employers, workforce leaders, policymakers, and other national organizations and federal agencies to further support workers in this sector and ultimately seize the opportunity at hand. Well, then break down, if you would, Joe, who or what is the water workforce? I mean, what are the characteristics of this, this workforce? In short, the water workforce refers to all the workers involved in constructing, operating, designing, and governing our water infrastructure nationally, whether maintaining individual treatment plants or carrying out repairs in homes. There are many different types of water workers in urban and rural areas nationally. They are everywhere. Think plumbers, pipe layers, electricians, and engineers, in addition to all the managers, analysts, and support workers that keep our systems safe, clean, and reliable every day. So it's easy to overlook these workers, but they are just as vital, if not more so, than the physical infrastructure we all take for granted each time we drink a glass of water, take a shower, or even brush our teeth. So adding up all these workers nationally amounts to a total employment of nearly 1.7 million in 2016 alone. Put another way, water workers consistently make up about 2% of employment, which might seem small on the surface, but this is an enormous and widespread segment of our labor market that is essential in every region across the country, from New York and Los Angeles to New Orleans and Kansas City. There are tens of thousands of water workers scattered across each region who play a foundational role managing our water infrastructure. And collectively, the water workforce fills 212 different occupations and carries out an enormous range of activities, again, whether installing and repairing equipment or analyzing and overseeing operations. And the most important mission critical occupations like water treatment operators, for instance, tend to be the largest. There are thousands of these financial, technical, and administrative occupations too. So while it's easy to just emphasize the biggest positions that are concentrated in the skilled trades here, there are many other positions and career pathways found throughout the sector. Well, I certainly want to give a shout out to the plumber who comes to my house and fixes my flash hot water heater. Thank you very much. But it's fascinating to know that there are so many more occupations in the water workforce than just 
the plumber or the utility company and the water treatment plant people that we think of working on our water infrastructure. So again, this isn't about the physical infrastructure itself. It's about the workforce. But I think it's important just to remind listeners how you conceive of what is the water infrastructure. Because again, it's more than my flash hot water heater mm-hmm. and the pipes in my house and my garden hose in the gutters that take the rainwater away. Right. So this is a subtle but important point. So when I refer to water infrastructure, I'm including all the different facilities responsible for providing drinking water, treating wastewater, and managing stormwater. And what do I mean by that? These systems range from traditional gray infrastructure, such as pipes, pumps, and centralized treatment plants, to green infrastructure, such as rain gardens and other related natural assets that tend to be more decentralized. They also include individual on-site treatment systems, such as septic systems, and then also other related physical assets specific to buildings, such as plumbing. So there's really a wide range of man-made structures here, as well as natural structures at play. Let's pause for a moment for another coffee break. My name is Jenny Schutz. I'm a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program here at Brookings. I grew up in Blacksburg, Virginia, which is a small college town in the southwest part of the state. And it's a little bit of an odd place to grow up if you become an urban economist because there were only 15,000 people in my hometown. I was inspired to become a scholar probably by two things. One is finding ideas and topic areas that I'm really passionate about and I want to study. And the other was having great mentors all the way through my career. So if you want to be a researcher, a scholar for your career, you need to find something you really care about and are interested in. Research can be a little bit of a solitary exercise. You spend a lot of time by yourself with your data and your computer. So I took a class in graduate school where I learned about a core theory of urban economics called the monocentric city model that explains how land values vary within cities. And to me, this was like the light on the road to Damascus, that this just explained how cities form and where people build and where we have tall buildings and short buildings. And I found this so exciting that I thought, I want to spend the rest of my life studying spatial patterns of cities. It was also really helpful to have great mentors and teachers at every stage of my career. So from my undergraduate thesis advisor through jobs and graduate school, research is really a craft that you learn as an apprenticeship. And so working with a senior scholar who teaches you how to do research, how to break down the process and how to work through a topic So it's a one-on-one learning experience, and having the right person to guide you and encourage you and support you the whole way is really important. The most important issue that we're facing is the increasing barriers to economic opportunity for lots of American families. So we know, for instance, that the zip code that you're born in and grow up in is very predictive of things like how much schooling you get and your future career and income even things like your health conditions and your life opportunities. And that's really antithetical to the American dream, the idea that a kid born anywhere in the country can grow up and be anything they want to be. So Americans have become less geographically mobile over time. People are less likely to move from zip codes that are poor, that don't have a lot of jobs or resources, but they're less likely to move to communities where they have better opportunities and can build better lives. One of the reasons behind this is housing costs. So if you live in someplace like Detroit, Michigan or Odessa, Texas, it's very hard to pick up and move to a place like D.C. or the Bay Area because housing is so much more expensive. So people in some senses are getting locked out of the high opportunity cities and locked into places where they will have worse outcomes on a number of measures. At the moment, I'm working on trying to understand how to make housing markets work better for middle income families. 
So if we think about sort of tiers of people, low-income families get some subsidies and support from the federal government, although generally not that much. High-income families are doing pretty well, but middle-income families really don't have a lot of policies that help them. And there are a couple different ways in which housing markets aren't working that well for middle-income families. So in places like D.C., the Bay Area, New York, housing has gotten so expensive that even somebody in the middle of the income distribution has a very hard time buying a house, paying the rent, living in a neighborhood that has good schools and access to jobs and transportation. So for some parts of the country, housing affordability is the main problem for middle-income families. In other places, the problem is that housing costs really haven't risen over time. And so if you bought a house in some place like Flint or Detroit, over 30 years, you may have paid off the mortgage, but you haven't actually built any wealth. And so when those families get to retirement, they really don't have savings accumulated. And our policies encourage people mostly to save through homeownership, which doesn't work everywhere in the country. One of my favorite books that explains how cities work is called Crabgrass Frontier. It's by a historian named Kenneth Jackson. And it's a great way to understand how cities have changed over time and some of the ways in which they haven't changed. So, for instance, people tend to think that suburbanization, people moving out to get bigger houses and more space, is a post-World War II phenomenon. But if you read the history, this goes back actually several thousand years. As people have more money, they always want bigger houses and more space and more privacy. And so the process of moving out and consuming more housing is a very old one. And now back to the interview. So to put the idea of this large number of industries and occupations into context, just kind of what percentage of the overall water sector is composed of, say, the utilities, the water utility that we all know? As I briefly alluded to earlier, the water sector captures a vast array of industries and each rely on a different mix of occupations and workers. Traditionally, water utilities are seen as the primary or only employer involved in overseeing the country's water infrastructure assets. However, a broader look at the water workforce nationally reveals that utilities employ about 298,000 workers or about 17% of the total water workforce. Other water-related employers led by Plumbing contractors, engineering firms, and construction companies employ nearly 1.4 million workers. In other words, when we think about the water sector as a whole, similar to the entire infrastructure sector, there are all types of employers and establishments that depend on skilled talent. And while water utilities are one of the most foundational employers in this respect, especially given their maintenance and oversight of our most important public assets, they are really part of a bigger ecosystem. In this way, when thinking about all the workers in this sector, it's important to acknowledge the complementary and at times competing dynamic at play when employers are on the lookout for workers. I'll point out for listeners that the report itself is full of tables and pie charts and maps that break down by percent and numbers all these different classifications, the largest occupations in the water sector, the percent that are in utilities and so on. Another area focus of this report is the demographics of the water workforce itself. Again, a lot of great charts and tables in here. Can you talk about what some of the unique characteristics are of the water workforce? Yeah. So in addition to measuring the size of the water workforce, the study also examined a number of different characteristics of workers filling these jobs, which are important to consider when thinking about the types of workforce development strategies that are ultimately needed to support these workers. So first, water occupations not only tend to pay more on average, compared to all occupations nationally, but also pay up to 50% more to workers at lower ends of the income scale. In other words, many water workers earn competitive wages overall, 
particularly those in higher paying jobs, such as lawyers, hydrologists, and so on. But water workers earn more equitable wages too, particularly those just starting out their careers. For instance, water workers earn hourly wages of about $14 and $17 at the 10th and 25th percentiles, respectively, compared to the hourly wages of $9 and $11 earned by all workers at these percentiles across the country. So in total, workers across 180 of those 212 water occupations earn higher wages at both of these percentiles. Second, the fact that these equitable wages often appear in occupations where workers have lower levels of educational attainment further underscores the opportunity evident here. So in fact, 53% have a high school diploma or less. These include carpenters, welders, and septic tank servicers, among numerous other positions. Instead, they require more extensive on-the-job training and familiarity with a variety of tools and technologies. For example, some of the biggest occupations, like water treatment operators, usually need two to four years of related work experience. And finally, there is clear room to further diversify the water workforce. Like many in the skilled trades, water workers tend to be older and lack gender and racial diversity in certain occupations. In 2016, nearly 85% of them were male, which I think was striking. When you think 100 people in a room, 85 are male. Two-thirds were white, and multiple workers are nearing or eligible for retirement. In particular, there's a lack of younger talent in these jobs. So just 10.2% of water workers are under the age of 24, which is lower than what we're seeing across all other occupations nationally. And so people of color also, I'll say, tend to be underrepresented in higher level, higher paying occupations involved in engineering or management, which is also a big consideration here too. And in terms of the gender distribution, it struck me that it's unevenly distributed where like the vast majority of plumbers, pipe fitters, construction workers are male. The majority of the office workers, clerical workers are women. Right. So given all these factors about the scope of the industry, the diversity of the industry, the demographics of the water workers, what are some of the challenges but also opportunities that y'all identify given those factors? Absolutely. So I think the wages speak for themselves, honestly. Uh, <laughs> while many water workers are continuing to search for careers that offer higher pay or at the very least a more livable wage, right? We're seeing that this sector is supporting more enduring shared prosperity. And several other factors such as cost of living need to be taken into account when comparing these differences across different regions. But water workers are clearly gaining access to a variety of well-paying employment opportunities across the country. In terms of education and training, it's encouraging to see positions that emphasize a broad range of skills and experiences that do not simply start or end with a four-year degree. Career and technical education, along with apprenticeships and internships, hold promise for water workers and many other workers beyond this sector who increasingly need to adapt their skills and become familiar with new tools and technologies. The importance of on-the-job training is key, too. And while water workers develop many valuable skill sets as a result, setting themselves up for continued career growth, it's important to note that this need for training can also create a barrier to entry. Non-traditional workers, including disconnected youth, veterans, and other job seekers, need to have flexible pathways by which they can learn about water careers and gain needed experience. And when it comes to demographics, it's clear that the water sector lacks younger, more diverse talent in many positions. This is obviously a challenge for utilities and other employers in need of a long-term pipeline of workers to reliably carry out operations, but it also marks a huge opportunity I won't get into the weeds here, but in the study, I point to the unique role played by water utilities as anchor institutions in many disadvantaged communities. Many of the biggest water employers are located in close proximity to neighborhoods with high unemployment, widespread joblessness, and low levels of educational attainment, offering a clear outlet, in my view, to job seekers who could fill many positions in need of a new generation of workers. And it struck me that 
the future water workforce will need to be larger than it is today because of whatever That's right. many factors involved here, especially in the aging of the infrastructure itself. So again, it's another way that there's a great opportunity in the water workforce. We often think about water as being managed by these water utilities at the local county or regional level, but what are, if any, the state and federal actors involved in the water workforce and what role do they play? Correct. So in addition to utilities, there are a variety of other water actors who each have roles to play in this space. I already described some of the other water employers earlier, and there are a vast assortment of community partners that educate, train, and assist workers interested in water careers. And, and these include educational institutions, workforce development boards, unions, and then other groups that offer job readiness programs, transition services, and other channels of support to workers. In many ways, national and state-level actors are positioned to provide greater capacity and momentum for these regional efforts. Federally, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is perhaps the most important agency when it comes to regulating utility activities and guiding workforce needs. And the U.S. Departments of Labor, Education, Veterans Affairs, and Agriculture offer programmatic support as well. A host of other national and state-level organizations, including industry associations, workforce groups, environmental coalitions, and state boards of education are also assessing existing training efforts and setting new strategic priorities. So, Joe, looking ahead, as this report is considered and digested and I hope shared around by the appropriate actors, what are the challenges and opportunities, again, not just of the demographics that we talked about a minute ago, but just for the water workforce in general looking ahead to the future? There are many challenges I discuss in the study, but I'll highlight just a few of the major points here. You know, the water sector is struggling to attract and hold on to skilled talent. Equipping workers with needed skills and credentials is not always easy. And even those workers who are eligible and interested in water work cannot always navigate an inflexible, time-consuming hiring process or progress their careers. For instance, a lack of public visibility combined with declines in career and technical education has reduced interest and experience among prospective workers who could fill water-related positions. You know, at the same time, a silver tide of retirements is drastically cutting into the pool of skilled, qualified workers in many utilities and resulting in staffing vacancies up to 50% in some cases. Likewise, a combination of hard skills and soft skills are essential for water workers to carry out their jobs. However, not all workers are obviously gaining the needed education, experience, or competency in these skills. And even when students and other prospective workers are demonstrating an interest in water careers, pursuing the needed education, and gaining the relevant experience, there can still be challenges hiring them and providing long-term growth opportunities. For example, depending on the particular region, many prospective workers, young and old, may lack job readiness, may remain out of work due to a criminal past, or may present a non-traditional background, which employers may not have the time, resources, or really the programmatic flexibility to even handle. So again, this is just a sample, but I'll say this, given the highly localized nature of water operations, capital planning needs, and labor demands, there are no one-size-fits-all strategies to address these recruitment challenges, which often spill over into the hiring process and the long-term retention of workers. The site visits, though, were enormously helpful to further clarify these barriers across different regions throughout the country. And opportunities for the water workforce in the future, how would you talk about that? In many ways, I think addressing the country's water workforce needs represents an aspirational moment where continued planning helps, but faster implementation is essential to drive new solutions. And for that reason in the study, I lay out what I call a new water workforce playbook to accelerate thinking and action. So rather than continually reflecting on what needs to be done, Having a consistent and discrete list of action items can help utilities, other water employers, community partners, and again, those national and state leaders to begin to better prioritize and launch solutions. So for example, locally driven actions are crucial 
to help workers achieve the needed skills and identify the available pathways to securing greater economic opportunity through the water sector. And these actions naturally start at the source. Utilities and the employers actually looking to hire, train, and retain a skilled, diverse workforce. Water utilities in particular not only need to focus on recruiting and retaining workers for themselves, but they should be a standard bearer for the entire water sector. And we can see this, I think, through a variety of internal programmatic changes where they can heighten the awareness of the water workforce opportunity and further prioritize action around faster hiring, more flexible training, and more predictable retention. We're seeing this already happening in places like the Bay Area, where utility-led efforts like Baywork, which I definitely recommend listeners check out, are better defining and upskilling workers interested in water careers. In addition, there needs to be continued dialogue and shared learning via stronger community partnerships. So in other words, to reach more prospective workers, all types of community partners and employers, not just utilities, needed to sit at the same table. Educational institutions, workforce development boards, unions, and a range of other organizations all have a role to play here, as I mentioned before. And it is critical for communities to keep stretching the tent to capture more partners and act more collaboratively. Having a specific point of contact or even just one regional organization to coordinate these actions helps, but so does having a clear space and opportunity to gather together in a public-facing way, which places like Louisville and Camden are testing out. Lastly, national and state leaders, I think, need to provide clear technical guidance and more robust programmatic support and investments in water workforce development. So national leaders, in my view, are strategically positioned to bring greater consistency and direction to many of these issues, including certain dialogues, considering reforms to certification programs, and even forming templates for future action. EPA and several other federal agencies are already examining different options in this way, supported by a number of industry associations and workforce groups nationally. So I'm excited to see where this goes. Sure. One of your conclusions, Joe, that really appealed to me is the idea that the water workforce needs more public visibility and more branding. You've alluded to this many times. It's struggling to attract talent. You know, students are a possible opportunity area for water workers. What does more public visibility, more branding of the water workforce even look like? Yeah, that's right. I mean, expanding recruitment efforts hinges on the development of a more proactive and intuitive message, I think, on water careers. So to help connect with younger students and a broader range of prospective workers, utilities, and, and other employers need to more effectively market their organizations and the variety of work opportunities in the space. For example, the Baltimore Public Works Department recently rebranded some of their training efforts under a new title and logo called YH2O to appeal more directly and intuitively with prospective workers. And even demonstration projects, including the installation of rain gardens in neighborhoods, can help. So above all, connecting earlier and often with students and job seekers can help create a stronger pipeline for years to come. And by doing so, we're not only setting ourselves up to improve our infrastructure, but also uh, promote greater economic opportunity. And it seems to me that through this report, Renewing the Water Workforce, you and AD have sort of defined the water workforce in a way that could be helpful for those who are trying to do this branding effort and expand the economic opportunity. I mean, where do you take this kind of research from here? The issue isn't going to go away, right? It's going to keep being talked about in Washington. It's going to be a major issue, I think, in certainly the regions that we visited and then regions beyond them. I think this is an issue that, economically speaking, has tremendous importance to urban and rural areas alike. It's a bipartisan priority. And so when we think of not just filling jobs for filling jobs' sake, right, but providing career pathways for all types of workers that are ultimately helping to improve our infrastructure is, I think, compelling. And it's certainly something that I think will continue to gravitate a lot of energy 
and action from the bottom up. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for stopping by the studio today to share your time and expertise. Thanks, Fred. You can find Joseph Kane's report with the detail mayor on the water workforce on our website at brookings.edu slash metro. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahan for design and web support. Our interns are Sarah Miner and Leah Kayali. Finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez for guidance and support. And welcome to the new Vice President of Communications at Brookings, Emily Horn. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events, podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.